Thanks, guys. Oh, good morning. Hmm. It's hot in here. <laughs> it's hot in here. Uh, the AC is out in uh, both this building and in the cathedral building. And so um, it's close to 90. Yeah. Yeah, Bill's steaming this morning. Whew. So we are uh, welcome to Ordinary Life, an educational offering of St. Paul's. We are really living um, between the no longer and the not yet in this virus time. Um, the parameters of it seem to get clearer on some days and really blurry on other days. Yeah. You don't know about school yet. We do actually. Yeah, HISD is not reopening in person and um, uh, Lena Hidalgo and Mayor Turner just announced that no school, public or private, will open in person until after September 8th. Why that date, do you know? Um, I don't know why that date. I think it's a bit of a false deadline. But So we, I, I'm grateful for the just kind of decision, the just unilateral, let's just make this decision and move forward. I have a gift for you. Oh. Oh, thanks. This is like some of my homemade peanut brittle. peanut brittle. Thank you. Which you, um, I gave, I gave William a piece. Do I eat it right now? If you want to. Oh, okay. Uh, then you can pass judgment on I'll my cooking. I'll report back. Okay, you do the announcements and I'll report back. Well, you say something about the podcast. Oh, well, we have a podcast called In Between that we record weekly. And uh, it's been a joy. We've had some people join us, and sometimes it's just Bill and me, but it's usually released on Thursdays. You can find it on our already streaming podcast station where we have the Sunday talks as well as the podcast coming through. You can find access it through our website. And I am working on getting it to Spotify for those of you who are Spotify people. I just haven't done it yet. So, um, yeah, listen in. That's it's cool. been fun. And you thought of the name of it. In between. In between. Because of in between the no longer and the not yet. In between you and me. And I, I keep saying I love the definition that of metaxis, which is in between, which was the answer that Diotima gave Socrates about where love is in the in between. I like it. Yeah. It's fun to do. Yeah. It's fun to do. You know, before the, the lockdown, and uh, we went into this uh, period of time where um, we kept thinking any minute that we would start gathering again, we had scheduled Michael Morewood to come, I think last April, and uh, he, of course, was not able to do that because travel and all of that sort of thing, and um I've been in conversation with Michael and what we have decided to do is that we're going to do a webinar with him and it's going to be on Thursday night, August the 27th between 7 and 9. Um, we've not done one of these, but we're going to learn how. Mm -hmm. I don't think it'll be too complicated. We've got Tim, William, Richard, John, Olivia. We got it. Yeah. And um, we're also uh, going to do the same thing with Jackie Lewis. I talked to Jackie Lewis, Dr. Jackie Lewis this week, who is one of the pastors of Middle Collegiate Church in um, mm. Manhattan. And um, we'll fix that in a second. We hope to. <laughs> um, anyway, we're going to have um, Jackie Lewis here. All day on Saturday, October the 17th, this will also be a webinar, but it will be like the same schedule as if we were in person. So that she will do a presentation on Saturday morning and then um, there will be a break and they will there will be what she calls a lively discussion mm -hmm. after that. And because several of the, the women uh, in Ordinary Life had been to a conference where Jackie Lewis spoke, uh, sometime last year, I think, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they heard her uh, program that had a good mix of music in it. I mentioned that to Jackie, and she said she would bring her music too. That they've done an album just for what they're doing. That's so cool. I'm I'm looking, I'm really looking forward to her being here. I yeah. think. And here takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? 
here. Yeah, where will we be? Is really we there, don't know. but it's, you know, she'll be there, we'll be here. Yeah. So it's sort of also a strange kind of in-between. She said that they had done this successfully already. And um, so she uh, has an assistant who has already sent me a lot of material about what was useful, about how they did their webinar. They used the platform Zoom, which we have access to through Richard and I have it and you have it. Mm -hmm. So there will be a registration process for this, but um, we don't know the details yet. Not just yet, but we'll start registering in about, um, thanks William, in uh, by August probably. Okay. August, September, thanks. Um, we, are ha we, are, we are struggling with some co connectivity this morning. We've got all kinds of... They say that the AC yeah. is out because of the internet. Oh, that's interesting. Too much competition between okay. the two needs. I want to let you know too that Ordinary Women uh, has adopted two night shift COVID units in the medical center. They've been providing snack food for them. The people in those units don't have access to decent food during the night. So Ordinary Life Women are making that provision to those people. Uh, I have friends and I'm sure you do too who are in the medical profession here in Houston and they are absolutely stretched to their limits mm -hmm. in what they are able to do and how they're managing. Hospitals are overcrowded and um, it's, it's a tough time. So if you're uh, prompted to donate money to um, Ordinary Life Women, there will be information in the summary that goes out this week about how you can do that. Uh, or you can just contact me and I'll let you know directly how to do that. Anything else also that you um, want to be in touch for me with me for, that would be helpful. We're trying to get our slide situation mm -hmm. handled. And I'm going to go on as if. Can I make a, a quick announcement report? Sure. The peanut brittle was delicious. I was a little worried that when I took the bite, that the crunch was sounding in my microphone, but it just kind of dissolved in my mouth. Yeah. It's so buttery and it went down really well with coffee. So thanks. That's my communion this morning. And you know, you can't make it. I can't, because I don't have a microwave. You don't have a microwave. I think you can use a stove top. This is my great, great, great grandmother's microwave peanut butter. Oh, really? <laughs> from 1842? Yeah. Before no, a microwave. From there. Yeah. I really did. I really have made pe microwave peanut brittle since I first got a microwave That's years funny. and years ago. So. Yeah, we don't have a microwave. Okay. Yeah. We could take up an offering and get you one. I don't really miss it. The only thing I used it for was heating up coffee. And okay. I'm all right. But thanks. Yeah. So the title that we owe, uh, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. And I know you're all pajama people these days, mm -hmm. mimosa people or wine and cheese people, whatever works for you on Sunday mornings. Uh, the title of this talk today is Reality Isn't What It Used to Be. And this is our combined reflection on the sixth step of the Eightfold Path called Right Effort. Reality isn't what it used to be. Now, already that's misleading because reality has always been what it has been, but that isn't quite accurate either because what we call reality is something that is constantly evolving or to put it in Buddhist terms, things arise and they fall away. They're constantly changing. I think two of the main ways that we cause ourselves suffering in this world is first we want reality to stay fixed or we want things to be different from the way they are. Mm -hmm. And so what I mean by that title is that what we've come to assume as normal is gone and we don't have a new normal in place and to further complicate things, we live in a culture where it is increasingly difficult to know who is telling the truth and what the truth is. One of my favorite comedy writers is a guy named Steve Bayman. Actually, he lives in Austin, and he goes under the stage name of Swami Bayandananda. Have you ever heard of him? No, but you're more in touch with the comedic world than I so am. So he has a website called Wake Up Laughing. Okay. That's really funny. Okay. It's, he really writes good stuff. Yeah. I think. Mm -hmm. This is what he wrote recently. As for who to believe, it's a challenge. 
A recent poll indicated that 60% of Americans are confused and the rest aren't sure. You've heard of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle? They're not even sure about that anymore. <laughs> and there's so much disinformation, misinformation, and missing information <coughs> that our collective skeptic system has overflowed. And this has given the body politic a bad case of truth decay. <laughs> I love that. That's funny. <laughs> in the very first presentation <clears throat> that I made in ordinary life, and that was 22 years ago last month, I ended that first talk by saying that I wanted to leave those who attended that talk with molasses in one hand and feathers in the other. And what I meant by that, I wanted to offer talks that did not provide any escape from the difficult work of having to think. And I remember inviting people in that talk to open your minds, take out all of your beliefs. You made them up anyway, or they were given to you by someone else. Many beliefs we embrace that we are not even consciously aware of, but they guide our lives. And look at them. At the end of the class, you can put them back. And I also admitted that during the time when your mind was open, I wanted to warp the door a little bit so that it would never firmly shut again. <laughs> um, Henry Matisse, the artist, once said, to look at something as if we've never seen it before requires great courage. And I would add effort. So the step in the eightfold path that we are up to today is the one that's called right effort. Now, I am told by those who keep up with such things that Buddha referred to effort or in energy more than any other single topic. Um, Jesus, too, made no bones about the fact that following the way that he was describing is difficult. So both Jesus and Buddha knew that the teachings they were offering were challenging and that they required significant vigor on the part of their followers. I'm convinced that the greatest disservice organized Christianity has inflicted on people is the notion that growing in our awareness and relationship to sacred mystery involves no more than a mental assent to certain key beliefs and those selected by the group that one is part of. It's so much easier to belong to a group than it is to belong to God. On the way home from church, a little girl turned to her mother and said, Mommy, the preacher's sermon this morning confused me. And the mother said, Oh, why is that? And the girl replied, Well, the preacher said God is bigger than we are. Is that true? Yes, that's true, the mother replied. And the preacher also said that God lives within us. Is that true? Yes, said the mother. Well, said the girl, if God is bigger than us and God lives in us, wouldn't you think God would show through? Hmm. So the teachings of Buddha and the teachings of Jesus are consistently about behavior, about a way to be, about a way to walk. And I think that right effort is absolutely key in the spiritual life. And the meaning of, of right effort is really very simple. Uh, it's not that you have to make yourself a particular way. It is the effort to come into the present and to relate to what's here with wakefulness and with love and, and with compassion. I can do this. Okay. Okay. We've done that one. Uh, right effort we are up to. It's an effort to be present, to relate to what is right in front of us, and to do that, as I said, with love and compassion. Now, doing this will make us peaceful. It will make us happy. But that's not the goal that we set out for. Those are byproducts to what it means to live with love and compassion. In your spiritual practice, which we're going to talk about extensively next week, and in your life, and we want to go along, a path. we want to create a path where those two become closer and closer. Our practice and our living are the same. Um, all kinds of things will happen to you along the way. You'll be bored. You'll be restless. You'll be happy. You'll be sad. You'll weep. You'll grieve sometimes. And you'll experience great joy and happiness. All these things are part of the path. And the effort that's important to learn is the effort to be present to what ever is. 
We are in a time of fairly intense social and political unrest, both on the right and the left. People are feeling that some of their most closely held, cherished values are being challenged or criticized or attacked. And I can assure you that anytime anyone feels any of those things, challenged, criticized, or attacked, the only psychological response they can make is to be defensive. Mm -hmm. So we have a tendency to want to dig in our heels and go about the business of justifying our position and proving our point. Mm -hmm. So. I love that you know part of right effort and part of the entanglement of the Eightfold Path itself is learning to hold multiple realities, not just within ourselves, so the multiple realities that we might go through, as you say, joy, weeping, grief, um, sadness, all of the above, um, that may amount to greater joy, but the holding of all of those realities can cause an attachment to suffering. So in holding these realities, you know, the reality of joy and pain together or um, sort of right and wrong together, what is just, what is unjust, what, what would you say about how we sort of settle in on what that sweet spot is, that middle way or that kind of what is the most just or the most right? Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure um, that this is the right answer to this question. <laughs> But I think that it's really helpful to know that people are always doing not only the best they can at the moment, yeah. but they're also always doing what they think is right. Yeah. Now, we might, as an objective observer, not agree with that position, but to try to change somebody who is convinced that what they believe and what they're doing is already the correct and proper thing is a futile is a futile thing to do. Right, and then so we can observe, let's say, um, unkindness, um, uh, uh, racism, uh, murder, and we can, we need to make an a discernment that that's not okay. That's not right? okay. And yet what I hear you saying is, and whoever is behaving like that is doing what they think is right. You know, so this, this is where I think that sort of relativity comes in and how do we, follow that eightfold path in this sort of middle way, which is what Thich Nhat Hanh refers to the eightfold path as the middle way. Um, I yeah. think that Richard Rohr is onto something really important when he says that the, the way to deal with people who practice what we call the bad mm -hmm. is not to confront them or challenge them, but mm -hmm. to practice the better. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're trying to right, do. Right, right, live, live through example kind of, or try. <laughs> Last Sunday morning, you asked me this question uh, before we went on the air. Uh, last Sunday morning, I was reading. We'd already prepared what we were going to do, but I was reading an editorial in a magazine that I have been taking for 50 years, mm -hmm. probably, called The Christian Century. Um, this is what The Christian Century says about its mission. For decades, the Christian century has informed and shaped progressive mainline Christianity. Committed to thinking critically and living faithfully, this magazine explores what it means to believe and live out the Christian faith in our time. As a voice of generous orthodoxy, the century is both loyal to the church and open to the world. I thought it was a great bit of synchronicity or entanglement, to use Ilya Delio's words, that this editorial found me at this time. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to read it in its entirety. It's a lot longer than stuff that I would normally read. But frankly, I couldn't find any place to cut it. You may not need this but it spoke to me last Sunday morning. Um, it's written by a guy named Peter Marty, who is the um, editor and, and um, producer, is that the right word? Publisher of the Christian Century. That is not only his, uh, that's not his only job. He is also the senior pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Davenport, Iowa. And the title of the editorial is called Letting Go of White Defensiveness. One of the unspoken privileges of being white in America is the privilege to assume that racism is not a pressing topic. 
To many white people, it makes little sense to expend energy talking about something largely remote from their daily experience. Race is what other people have, and racism is what other people are responsible for. When one's life is shaped within the confines of neighborhoods, schools, workplaces, and worship settings that are mostly entirely white, whiteness feels quintessentially American. It's normal. It's the standard, the default. Every other skin color is abnormal, other diverse. Because structural racism gets discussed so reluctantly within white enclaves, it's little wonder that racial illiteracy rears its head when a death like George Floyd's occurs and millions take to the streets. Suddenly white innocents get exposed and people race to catch up on what they have largely ignored. Hefty reading lists get shared, anti-racism titles go on back order, uncomfortable conversations about white privilege tumble into the open as people try out new vocabularies to test their voice. Racial credentialing enters the scene, too. I have a couple of friends who are black. Shaming goes on a rampage. Guilt ratches up. Defensiveness shifts into high gear. I have noticed that few subjects spark defensive behaviors among white people quite like white privilege. Plenty of folks take umbrage at that label because it feels to them like an accusation of personal racism, a threat to their way of life, an indictment of their niceness. To them, the word privilege connotes visible perks or benefits usually associated with class or wealth. What they don't see is a racialized society where privileged is essentially an exemption from the weighty psychic burdens that afflict black people every day. If you're white, you don't have to deal with negative assumptions being made about you based on the color of your skin. If you're black, you deal with it every day. As someone has put it, white privilege doesn't mean your life isn't hard. It just means the color of your skin isn't one of the things that make it harder. Here's what the Christian faith helps me know and reminds me to tell my most defensive-minded friends. Look, you have some tools in the toolbox of your faith life that are exciting to put to work in the world of racial inequality. Start by letting go of defensiveness. That's a must. It's a constrictive survival response that only separates you from God. I know we equate letting go of something, including cherished assumptions, with deprivations, but claw marks don't set you free. According to Jesus, relinquishment is a ticket to abundant life. Re-examining personal behaviors and perspectives isn't just a Linton project. We no longer have the luxury of living racially unaware lives. Where you feel uncomfortable, disempower it. Let go of your bitterness. The Lord helps us know that we don't have to secure ourselves against insecurity. So relax into the power of faith. Do some soul searching. Take what scares the hell out of you about yourself and pick it up, much like that cross Jesus mentions. Then move your ego aside, much like that self-denying denying of self that Jesus commands, and live. Live with the mind of Christ humbly open to changing all that needs to be changed about you and about your world. Mm. That's a powerful piece. A, it's great. Yeah. You know, I have used these words by Artie Lang in here before, and I want to use them again because I think they're so relevant to what, what right effort is. The range of what we think and do is limited by what we fail to notice. And because we fail to notice, that we fail to notice, there's little we can do to change until we notice how failing to notice shapes our thoughts and deeds. That's right effort in, in, in summary right there. What's required for us to move into this territory is uh, what I mean when I use the word non-dual. It's, and it's from this mindset that the holy people in your life that you know are able to love their enemies, forgive offenses, embrace paradoxes and apparent contradictions. And we see Jesus doing this all the time in his ministry, crossing boundaries and breaking down walls and inviting his disciples to do the same. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting. I'll, I'll say one thing about the article on white defensiveness. Um, 
this, this sort of um, privilege or that white is normal and everything else is, is not normal gets set in almost unconsciously at a very early age. I was listening to uh, an educator talk about anti-bias education and um, one of the things that was mentioned was that in, in children's books, in many children's books, let's take Harry Potter, one of my favorites, right? That, um, that all of the primary characters are, are white. The, there's like maybe one or two characters that, that show up enough to be sort of important. And it's, and it's not noted that Harry, Hermione, Ron, et cetera, are white, but it is noted that when Dean and uh, the other characters who are non-white show up, that they are not white. Mm. And so again, when you note when you don't note whiteness, but you do note something else, you're otherizing it, right. right? And it's not to say we need to go to color blindness and not notice, but why notice one and not the other? Why name one and not the other, right? Because we're, we're saying this is the standard, this doesn't fit into the standard, so we're gonna name it, you know? And, yeah. and it's, 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 so I just thought that was so interesting that even in literature, kids learn um, that if, so my kids, who are brown, who, who notice that when that's mentioned, it's not the norm. And it's usually not a primary character. Right. So I, I just think there's so much to think about there and so much to readjust to, I think. But anyways, when we think about um, right effort, one of the things that struck me was that nourishing our suffering makes space for joy. Like this kind of paradox of a statement is difficult to hold at first, but so Thich Nhat Hanh also calls right effort, right diligence. And it's kind of this middle way between indulging and ignoring and between overdoing and underdoing, right? Uh, he tells this story to introduce right diligence. There was a monk practicing sitting meditation very hard, day and night. He thought he was practicing harder than anyone else. And he was proud of this. He sat like a rock all day and all night, but his suffering was not transformed. One day his teacher asks him, why are you sitting so hard? The monk replied, to become a Buddha. The teacher picked up a tile and began polishing it. And the monk asked, teacher, what are you doing? His master replied, I'm making a mirror. The monk asks, how can you make a tile into a mirror? And his teacher replies, how can you become a Buddha by sitting? Again, that, you know, that sort of lively exchange of let me show you what you're doing so that you can see what you're doing is a beautiful teaching. But the moral is in part to convey the importance of contemplation and action, but also to say that if your practice causes you more dis-ease than ease or joy, then you're not practicing correctly. That's Thich Nhat Hanh's assumption or, or, or assertion. I once had a yoga teacher who used to say, don't try hard, try easy. And when he would say that, you would find yourself like holding your breath, holding your breath. If I just stay in this pose a little bit longer and you start trembling. But when you try easy, you let some of that holding your breath go. And finally, you're in the pose. One of the, the phrases that's in AA that I love is take it easy. Yeah. And when I first heard it years ago, like a lot of the phrases that I got introduced to in AA, um, I, th I thought it was sort of shallow and superficial, mm -hmm. but the more I stayed with it, the more profound I realized it is. Mm -hmm. Take it easy means to receive without grasping, clutching, right. fighting, right. crying, just, but take it. Yes. Take it. Yeah. yeah. And also to give that way. Yeah. To give without strings attached, without grasping to what you want from that person or thing that you're giving to, right? So the practice of right diligence is like this. It's this middle way. Um, if a guitar string is too taut, what happens? It breaks. If the guitar string is too loose, it makes no sound. I don't want to mistake right diligence with perfection. That's not the point. Perfection is like the too taut string. It's rigid and anxious and controlling. The just right string lies somewhere in between austerity and total indulgence. I resonate with this distinction between attachment and commitment. I once heard that when we are overly attached to something, it is easy to become rigid, controlling, and anxious. Too, that too tight string, again. If we 
allow ourselves to become aware of these feelings or sensations operating in us, then we can sort of let go of their grip on us and we begin to experience the fluidity, the flexibility in the process. So in the, that fluid space then, it's possible to experience commitment without attachment. So I think what I mean by that is like, I'm committed to my children's well-being. I'm not, I'm working on as a parent, not being attached to what that looks like. I can't be attached to a particular outcome. Well, I want this kid to become a lawyer. I want this kid to become a saxophone player. I want this kid to become a writer. That's attachment. But if I'm committed to their well-being, I'm going to help them make space to figure out what that can look like. And I think when we're driven, when attachment is driven by narrow strategies and commitment is driven by process-oriented strategies, it keeps sight of the goal while remaining open to how we get there. My mantra as a, as a classroom teacher used to be, you come with form and flexibility. So always come with a plan, but be ready to be flexible. Right. <laughs> yeah. The best analogy I can think of is water. It's able to take the shape of any container. It creates canyons over time. It, it, you know, this earth, the formations on this earth was created by the movement of water. So we need to be like water. And we mentioned that a little bit on the podcast this week and talking about water and yeah. being the wave. But, um, you know, so commitment has this possibility of disrupting what I called crazy eight thinking last week. And, you know, this crazy eight thinking, when we get stuck in attachment, we go between anger, frustration, resentment, blaming. And when we don't get our way, we get depressed, sad, isolated, lonely. And then we get back to defiance, anger, et cetera. So when we make the empowering choice to be committed, we're disrupting the crazy eight. Right. Yeah. Now, this gives me an opportunity. And as I said, we will have more of this next Sunday mm. to visit my very, very, very favorite topic. Wait, wait, wait. A daily spiritual practice? A daily spiritual okay. practice. <laughs> I'm so glad I passed the test. Right effort. <laughs> In right effort, practice is essential. As I said, we're, we're going to get more into this next week when we talk about right mindfulness. At the conclusion of the 10-day meditation retreat that I did in 1994, mm. after it was over, the students were sitting around processing our experience. And the advice that I got at that time was that to, to practice daily, you need persistence and patience in the practice. Persistence and patience in the practice. But we needed to do it. And as the teacher said, easy does it, but do it. Mm -hmm. um, Jack Kornfeld in his book, Seeking the Heart of Wisdom says, right effort requires courage. It is an acknowledgement of what we really don't know and a willingness to examine the deepest questions of life. I also believe that right effort takes a community of some sort. Uh, that's kind of a challenge to create right now because we're not able to gather so, but you can do, create your own communities. Um, I've recently become part of a men's group where we talk about things like this. Uh, you can create your own Zoom happy hours. You can talk about this class after it's over with the people that you're with. Um, and I also believe that right effort requires a teacher. Right now we are using Jesus and Buddha and you are using Bill and Holly, but there are other teachers living and dead out there. Um, check out their credentials, their credibility. Um, see if the teacher that you're with allows you to be who you truly are and to raise questions. Uh, don't expect perfection from a teacher. That's hard to come by. But again, the point is right effort is practice, not just reading about it, not just listening to talks about it, not just knowing the eightfold steps, but actually putting them into practice. And I, I put the picture of the swan up because the swan appears to be gliding gracefully over the surface of the lake, mm. but underneath the swan is working like mad to make sure that <laughs> she gets to the other side right. of the lake. And I guarantee you that in the smiling demeanor of somebody like the Dalai Lama or Desmond Tutu, 
Those are the two that first came to mind because of their book, The Book of Joy. I guarantee you that underneath that equanimity are hours and hours and hours of practice, daily practice, being aware, uh, seeking to bring compassion to all parts of themselves and then to extend that into others. Right effort isn't about trying to make something happen. It's the effort that's required just to be awake. And again, when we get to right uh, mindfulness, we will talk a lot about Thich Nhat Hanh. He's got a lot of very specific exercises. Um, I remember that years ago, uh, Sherry had two of his sayings, one by her phone mm. that said, when I pick up the phone, I acknowledge that I am connected to someone else. Mm -hmm. And the other was about uh, in her car about, mm -hmm. you know, stopping in a stoplight gives me an opportunity to pause. Mm. That, that sort of thing. She got those from Thich Nhat Hans. Mm -hmm. Now, you can learn a lot by negative examples. You've heard of the Darwin Awards? I haven't. When I read that, I wasn't Oh, sure Holly, the Darwin Awards. Yeah. Look them up. The, okay. Look them up on uh, Google. The Darwin Awards are given uh, out every year to people who improve the gene pool by removing themselves from it. <laughs> Oh, goodness. And the winner of the Darwin Award for 2019 were actually two Texas guys. Oh, Lord. From somewhere around south of Dallas. Here. For sure Dallas. No, no just south of here. <laughs> somewhere over near the Louisiana okay. bar. Okay, okay. Um, a little over a year ago, these two young men, one was 28, one was 34. Hmm. It's kind of young. Mm -hmm. Were approaching a drawbridge that was raised. No other car was in line, and they pulled up. So one of them got out, raised the guard rail that blocked a car from going across the drawbridge. They backed the car up and took, like Thelma and Louise, oh, Lord. a running jump to, you know, make Try the Try to make it to the other side of the drawbridge. Try to make it to the other side of the Is guard. that how they removed themselves from the gene pool? They did remove okay. themselves from the gene pool. That way they had to be lifted up out of the bottom of the river oh, by a pontoon. Oh, my gosh. That's not right effort. <laughs> That's not being mindful. No, it, it isn't. Being <laughs> present. Yeah. So um, I, I mentioned this in here a couple of weeks ago. Um, Jack Kornfeld says that one of the ways to do right effort is to live as if you were in training to be the next Dalai Lama. Now, this is not pretending, but it is living into a role. Again, a phrase from uh, AA, you fake it till you make it. You act as if, and, and pretty soon, with right effort, the attitude and, and, the, and the emotion comes along with the behavior. Years ago, I found some lines that have been very useful to me. Um, in, in Buddhism, Buddhists take three vows, to take the refuge in Buddha, take the refuge in the Dharma, and take refuge in the Sangha or in the community. And that doesn't fit for my language. So someone else, I don't remember where I got this, came up with those things translated into what I might think is a more um, ecumenical or inclusive way. You don't have to be Buddhist to do this. But we take refuge, meaning sanctuary, safety, in our capacity to awaken. We believe that we can awaken and that we do awaken in, uh, over, over a period of time. And we take refuge in the ways of living that bring about our freedom and happiness. And those ways of living are spelled out in the Eightfold Path about right livelihood and about right speech and about living with compassion and kindness. <coughs> and we also take refuge by being open to all those who can support us on this path to freedom. And those things I think are really worth embracing. When the Buddha became enlightened, he didn't say, well, that's taken care of, I think I'll go to the beach. He continued to practice and he continued to teach for another 40 years. When Jesus had that experience where he was overcome with the awareness that he was a child of God and so was everyone else, he didn't just settle back and open a wine and bread shop, which he could have done. Right. He made wine. In a carpentry shop. He could a, have a carpentry shop. shop. Yeah. 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 But he went about teaching that experience to as many people as would listen to him mm -hmm. to the point that it really upset the establishment. Mm -hmm. 
There are some um, Buddhist teachers today, um, um, Western Buddhist teachers, who I really love, who Angel Kyoto Williams mm -hmm. and Zinju Earthland Manuel, both of whom are also activists. In, and so the Sangha becomes not just the place where you find your sort of meditative community or spiritual practice community, but also how do we see sort of the wider community, the wider world as our Sangha. Mm -hmm. So that sort of um, embedded piece of our nature that, that connects us to all and how our actions um, ought to be in betterment for um, the whole Sangha. Well, we're in a Methodist church. Yeah. John Wesley said, uh -huh. the world is my parish. Yeah. And the world is offering us an, a, a lot of opportunities to lean extend in. and express yeah. love and compassion yeah. right now. Yeah, to lean into that for sure. So I, I've mentioned to you several times that I was listening to, and, and I just finished um, Ta-Nehisi Coates' novel, The Water Dancer. It's an incredible audio, audible listen because the reader of the book has this deep baritone voice, and I'm totally blanking on his name. I'm terrible at remembering that on the, on the not the author, but the reader. Um, and there's elements in the book where there are spirituals um, and he sings them as he reads. And so it's a really rich listening experience. I highly recommend it. It's also a, a great read. I kind of read along with it as I was listening, but enjoyed the listening a lot. So it's not, it, Harriet Tubman isn't the main character in, in the novel, but she features in it. She's sort of um, a person around whom the energy in the novel works. And it is in part talking about her mystical abilities. And it was said that she had visions. Um, she received a blunt trauma to the head uh, multiple times. And after that, she began to have visions. And she cultivated these visions to uh, be utilized in her work with the Underground Railroad and freeing enslaved peoples. Uh, I'm sure Ta-Nehisi Coates took some creative liberties with how he worked through this in his language and how he worked through this in the images. But in the book, Harriet could conjure images of the enslaved people she needed to rescue. And to do this, she needed a, a memory connection. So she could connect to a memory and through water could conjure this memory. And she conducted these memories and conducted, therefore, the people across waters to freedom. She had the nickname Moses, <laughs> and she, she, so she learns to cultivate this ability through right diligence. I'm not suggesting she was Buddhist. She wasn't. She was deeply committed to um, her Lord, which was a Christian God, but, she was, but there, there's that similarity between the Buddha and, and Christianity, which is freedom, liberation, and justice. So she was committed to freedom. And uh, you know, she used her gift for good. And in, like the biblical Moses, Harriet carried this staff, wizened and old and smooth. This is it does not shown here uh, from the branch of a sweet gum tree. She conducted these visions, as I said, in flowing water and literally you know, parts the waters like Moses to free her people. Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Yeah. Oh, baby, let my people go. Right. So I, I kept thinking of that song when I was listening. But she she walks this fine line between giving over to anger and despair and letting go of fear of death. She knew in the work she was doing that her life was at risk. And there's there's a quote in the book where she talks about being in service to freedom, not in service to fear. And letting go of that fear of dying allowed her to remain, again, this is commitment versus attachment. She remained committed to the process, knowing that the outcome was not always going to be achieved as she would have liked, but remained committed to the process instead of attached to a particular outcome. Committed to freedom, as opposed to sort of the particularities of how that was achieved. And so her, she sort of mentors, in a way, the main character in this book. In the documentary that was recently released about John Lewis, which we watched on the same night, evidently. Yeah. We both watched it Friday night. It's called Good Trouble, and I recommend that as well. You can rent it through the NAACP website. He said, when you lose all sense of fear, that's when you're free. He also said, sometimes by sitting down or kneeling, we are really standing up. And I loved that. I loved that statement as well. So whether or not Harriet Tubman had the gift for sight, I really can't say, and I'll never get to ask her. But I do believe she was a mystic, 
one who prized deliberation and justice over her own life. When we're in right diligence, we're given that insight that the whole can only ever be as strong as its parts. So as we ended last week, and we didn't get to get into this very much, you posed the question, what is ours to do? Right diligence, I think, is attending to the task that is yours with the right amount of intensity and ease. Do you want to say anything about what is yours? What is mine to do? Well, or? You could, or, or just what that question, that sort of general idea about like, when, you know, I think so many of us struggle with, well, what do I do, right? There's all this need in the world. There's all this um, need for attention and need, um, things that need to be tended to. What is mine to do? And yeah. my advice to people about that is to um, find out what your gift is. Yeah and find out where that gift can meet the need of the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, not everybody has to do the same thing. No. It's not my gift to do certain kinds of social action things. I do have a gift, I think, as a teacher. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, this is a question that I raise with people in individual counseling sessions uh, all the time. When the opportunity arises, um, I will say, why are you here? Mm -hmm. And more often than not, people will think I'm asking, why are you here in the room? <laughs> why are you literally here? But uh, what I'm, my question is, why are you here? Why are you on this planet? What are you about? What your life is about? And I, I think a man who has put a lot of his life energy into helping people answer that question is James Hollis. Yeah. And uh, Hollis has written a book now called Living the Examined Life, which I mentioned a lot when we were gathering. Uh, it's a book that you can use as a almost a daily practice book. Yeah. You can read every chapter in less than 10 minutes, 21 chapters in the book. I suggest that people read that book and make notes on what they read and then go back and read it again. Read it while, and have somebody you can talk to about it and it will help answer this question about what what is ours to do? Mm -hmm. Why am I here? What is mine to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, it is unique for, for but, but finding community within which we can operate too is important. So if you've ever been among a copse of aspen trees, I, used, I went to undergrad in Colorado and this, this season, fall, was my favorite season because of the, the sound of the aspen trees. And you might be able to, if you have been among them, close your eyes and imagine the vibrant yellow. And the sound to me that sounds like the tinkling of glass, thin sheets of glass as the leaves blow in the wind. One variety is called quaking aspens, which I found to be such an apt description because they do, they almost kind of shake. It's, uh, they, and here's the cool thing about aspens. They always grow in groups and they cannot survive alone because they're bound by the same root system. So one aspen tree is actually only a small part of a larger organism. The whole thing is a single organism. A stand is um, the, the main force, the main life force is underground in this extensive root system and little shoots grow up out of the ground. Before a single aspen trunk appears above the surface, the root system nourishes itself for years and, and, and it's dormant almost for many, many years until the conditions are just right, including sufficient sunlight. In a single stand, each tree is a genetic replica of the other, so they clone themselves. This root system is nourished until the exact right moment for growth. Two things can happen then if a single aspen gets sick. They die from the top down, and a healthy stand can cut the dying tree off from its nutrient system if it sort of notices, right? And if the whole system is out of balance because of drought, disease, or infestation, one sick tree can take the entire stand down. So right diligence is like this for us. Thich Nhat Hanh says we choose to attend obsessively to the six seeds in our consciousness, or if we choose to attend to those, the ones bound by anger, fear, greed, defensiveness, or we can bypass them, we can cut them off. There is this third way, and that's the fine line or the sweet spot that grows with a spiritual practice and attentiveness to what is. When we acknowledge the negative seeds of concentration in Thich Nhat Hanh's words, when we allow them to teach us, then absorb them like a nutrient into the work of transformation and liberation. This is how suffering can beget joy. 
So with right diligence, it's not about trying to erase the bad and the hard, but to sit with it, observe it, and nurture it until it softens and turns toward love. In this point, um, we're taught to hold two or more realities at once. And, you know, so right now I'm experiencing grief that schools won't reopen in the fall, that there are teachers and kids and families that have to figure this out. And I'm also experiencing relief that schools won't open in the fall. And both of those need to be able to be possible at once in order to really experience the fullness of, the, uh, of, of this moment. So in learning what seeds to water and what seeds to cut off, we can change reality. We need to tend to the things that need to be tended to, otherwise they get bigger. So if we deny them, they take us over and grip us in a way that becomes overwhelming and hard to transform. So I, when the document that you read about white defensiveness, my suggestion would be to take something like that. I'm just going to guess that you know, some of us might feel a little bit tense. Sit with it line by line and just notice where it sits in your body and attend to that defensiveness, attend to the places that get caught. You could take one line a day over the course of however many weeks and just sit with it. What is it like? to sort of dissolve defensiveness in that sitting. And if you don't uh, get the Ordinary Life previews and summaries that go out, you can go to the Ordinary Life website and subscribe. Mm -hmm. It's free. You can unsubscribe at any time. And the full text of that white defensiveness document will be in what yeah. I send out on Tuesday morning. But that's what I think is necessary, is not bypassing it, attending to it without obsessing over it. And noticing, yeah. yeah, just noticing where do we get gripped. I had a, a teacher, Carlisle Marnie, who was, he was a great teacher and, and one of his questions, he had two questions that he asked us over and over and over again when he would encounter us. He said, what are you feeding on? Mm. What are you feeding on? What's feeding your soul? What, what is that right now for you that is causing you to experience this expansiveness and freedom and love. And where are you finding new light? Mm -hmm. where, where is the new, uh, where's new light for you coming into being? And that's, those are two very helpful questions to lift up in this time of, of right effort. Yeah. Hmm. I, uh, I want to introduce to you uh, a guy. I think we have time to do this. Mm -hmm. um, One of the most important people I have ever met is this guy right here. His name is Paul Vatslavik. Um, he was a pioneer in the field of human communication. Uh, he was the one from whom I first heard the phrase, you cannot not communicate. <laughs> Every behavior in the presence of another person communicates something. And he did his work at a time when the entire field of physics was undergoing a change brought about by the discovery in general systems theory. And involved in this, of course, were the discoveries of ecology and insights from all other kinds of things. And we're now in this new period. Holly is specializing in... Um, evolutionary cosmology, which probably wasn't even a topic two or three years ago. It was. It's, it's still kind of new. Yeah, I mean, I think it's becoming more in the, in, the, in the main line, right? Okay. A little more acceptable, yeah. Well, we're in it. We're in it. <laughs> and, and we're using, uh, a, a, and Holly introduced this idea, we, we're using the, take not Hans' phrase, interbeing. Because it's a way to acknowledge that everything that is and all who are are, are, are connected. Um, we're, we're involved in this quantum leap in our understanding um, that we're not at the center of things, but we are immersed in this sea of uncontrollable, unfathomable mystery. And, and I like to say that a mystery is not something that is not understandable. A mystery is something that is endlessly understandable. There's just more to come and more to come and more to come. 
And sadly, this is not what most religion is. Most religion is kind of cafeteria style, fast food, take what you want, throw the rest away, not an immersion in the totality of, of sacred mystery. Uh, religious conservatives have had a tendency to say, we can do, we can still do the old things with the same old mind. No. Religious liberals have had a tendency to say, we can do new things, but with the same old <laughs> mind. No. Uh, what Holly and I are trying to open the door to is new things with new minds. Uh, and people like Paul Watzlawick help usher in a new way of helping us understand how we could use our minds and the language that we use to create the various worlds in which we live. Um, the new way to do the new thing is to do it with love mm -hmm. at ever and ever and ever deeper levels. Now, I got to confess, I don't remember the order in which I read Vatilich's works. Mm. Um, he wrote a book which I think may be the most single influential book I had ever read in my life up until that time, and it's called The Pragmatics of Human Communication. Huh. He also wrote another book that was very important for me at that time called Change. And in writing this class, I thought, you know, I'm going to go back and read those books, reread those books. So I'm making a commitment publicly to do that. Okay. I'm going to start reading them. But the book that I really love the most and the one that sort of influenced the title of this class today is a book he wrote called How Real is Real. A lively demonstration of the ways in which communication, spoken, written, signed, and body language creates what we call reality. It even has on the cover an Escher drawing of a hand drawing a hand. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that drawing. Particular yeah. one. He he wrote and co-authored a lot of a, a lot of other things. And one of the things I learned from Vatsovic is that we cause ourselves untold trouble because we fail to accept that what is, is, and what ain't, ain't. Mm -hmm. And further, we complicate our lives by believing that I'm not happy right now, but I will be as soon as I can make you be different <laughs> or believe different. Right. And if you've ever walked down that path, right. that doesn't work. That's codependence, right? I'll be happy when you're, when you're the way I want you to be, right? Yeah. No, Buddha said in the sky, there's no distinction. There's no east, west, north, or south. Right. We make the distinctions. Uh -huh. and uh -huh. You can see this in the, the line of thinking that led me to develop what I say is the heart of spiritual practice, and that's paying attention. Mm -hmm. that's, and it's the content of spiritual practice, too, yeah. is to, to pay attention. It takes effort. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I want you to know about what to love it. You mentioned just a minute ago the idea of quantum leaps, right? And, and, and we may be in this sort of um, quantum leap, a shift of consciousness, right? And um, I, I love this idea in evolutionary cosmology that there is an exact right moment for everything. So in, in, at the beginning of when the Big Bang occurred, humans could not have like popped up in that moment because the, the conditions were not right. Mm -hmm. So it had to go in this order of photon waves of the universe being just flooded with light waves to breaking apart those light waves to becoming um, stars, stars becoming constellations, becoming galaxies, forming planets. So there's an exact right moment for everything. And I think that that's true also in developing both our imagination and our consciousness. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you know, it's like when you're in grief and you feel, you feel like, I'll never be happy again. I can't imagine being happy again. And then all of a sudden there's a day when you're like, I didn't cry today. Mm -hmm. That's a quantum leap, right? Of a shift. Stay at it, it's possible. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Life is hard. Yeah. There is uh, the line in, in the teachings of Jesus where he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Or as Eugene Peterson translates it, I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Yeah, these are tough times mm -hmm. that we are living in, no doubt about it. 
they are harder. We make them harder by trying to live outside of them, by trying to live outside of what is, by trying to live in some other reality than what is. The enlightened people that I know are happy, they're joyful, they're delight to be around. And I think that if our religion or our spiritual practice doesn't lead us into that kind of joy, it's not worth doing, really. Um, religion is not supposed to be a heavy burden. It's supposed to lead to freedom and love. Um, and I, I, I believe, and I've heard this from Richard Rohr, I've heard it from Jim Finley, I've heard it from people like Ilya Delio, I hear it in the Buddhist practice of nam namaste. Mm -hmm. It's the God in me that loves the God in you. Or as yeah. Jim Finley says, I'm not you, I'm not other than you, I'm not God, I'm not other than God. Mm -hmm. And it is this stance, this faith stance, that leads us to rest in peace and love and joy. And it's the only kind of resting that can really sustain us during this dark time. Hard and soft, mm. difficult and easy, pain and pleasure, they don't eliminate one another, but actually allow each other, as Holly said. And it's not naive, it is not whistling in the dark to say that eventually we're able to recognize the silver lining in the darkest of life's clouds. Mm. If our truth does not set us free, it's not much of a truth. Thank you. I love doing this with you. Likewise. Me too. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo. So watch your step and we will see you here next week. Yeah.